Welcome to Lost in Twin Peaks. Today's episode covers Season 3, Part 15, More in the Town. So we're going to continue looking at scenes that take place in Twin Peaks. Yesterday, uh, in addition to talking about what took place outside of Twin Peaks, we talked about the Ed and Norma storyline, which was a big chunk of uh, the discussion, even though it's kind of a, you know, only a small part of the episode, relatively speaking, although it is a long sequence. Today, though, we're going to go into all the other different storylines of uh, the, the the Twin Peaks setting. So let's get into that. For the story sections in Twin Peaks, the only bit of the Cooper investigation we get this week is when the log lady calls Hawk. Mostly she's talking about dying. This is a much more like philosophical conversation and it's very moving because of course Catherine Coulson really was dying. What she's talking about, like there's just such a very thin line here between the fiction and the non-fiction in this scene. But during this exchange she does um, say a few lines that sort of relate to the plot and the Cooper stuff. She warns Hawk about the one under the moon on Blue Pine Mountain. We'll talk a little about that in the lodge lore section. Just kind of prepares him for whatever may be coming with Cooper. It's almost really more like they're preparing the audience, and I think that's kind of implicit in this. For the Roadhouse, we have the MC introducing ZZ Top. This is, you know, it's funny, when the MC first came out, we didn't see him for eight episodes, and then he introduced the Nine Inch Nails, and it seemed like, this is a big deal. They even brought out an MC to introduce somebody at the Roadhouse. Wow, like, this is just underscoring how important the Nine Inch Nails performance was. Then we start to see him introduce other bands. Then he's introducing bands we've already seen. Then he's introducing James Hurley. Now here he is introducing, literally recording and dancing on stage. So it's like he's had this little slow demotion throughout the series where uh, suddenly his importance is a bit undercut, but it all paves the way nicely for next episode. After this, later on, we see the Veils performing Axolotl, and during this number, there's a young woman, Ruby, sitting at a booth, and two bikers come over, ask her if anyone's sitting there. She says she's waiting for someone, and they just kind of shrug, pick her up, put her on the floor. Very jarring, partly because it's so, like, nonchalant, like it's not done violently they're not jerking her around but it almost makes the like rudeness and aggression of it even more startling in a way so she's sitting on the ground she starts crawling toward the stage looking around her moving through the people's legs and then just starts screaming and this very much mirrors cooper's actions in vegas so there's a nice little parallel going on there for james we see him in the roadhouse he says hi to renee and then he's punched by Chuck, her very aggressive husband, getting beaten up before Freddie rescues him. And then uh, he apologizes to Renee and Chuck, and she looks at him like, what, what have you done? I don't think it's going to work out between James and Renee. This is going to be another in a long line of forlorn, unfortunate James romances. For the Freddie storyline, when we see Freddie help Jim, uh, Jim, <laughs> that's what he calls James, he punches Chuck, and of course Chuck is just knocked right the fuck out, and he punches Chuck's friend as well, same thing, like, and they're almost a little foaming at the mouth, they're shaking on the floor, so this is like what he did to Mr. Jobsworth in the UK, and uh, if this is any indication, Jobsworth didn't end up too well either. This is the first time we actually get an example of his glove in action. I think that's important, you know, because we've heard about it, but to actually see it is another thing. Watching this scene, too, I was noting, and I didn't know this until I was looking her up for the character study, but Jessica Sor, the actress who plays Renee, she was in Gossip Girl. She came out as a celebrity in, like, the late 2000s with that show, and she was actually one of People Magazine's 
50 most beautiful people one year. She is in that gang with uh, many others like Sherilyn Finn. I think maybe Kyle MacLachlan. No, I don't think he's in there, but Chris Isaac is. All these other Twin Peaks actors who ended up on that list at one time or another. Watching this, I was thinking about, okay, so she's here from Gossip Girl. We have Amanda Seyfried from Veronica Mars, and we have Michael Sarah from Arrested Development. And we have these just these three actors very associated with like 2000s shows and now they're all around 30 so they're still pretty young but that time has passed it's now been seven or eight years it feels a little like a different era and it almost adds another layer of melancholy or nostalgia to the show where you have a lot of these actors who've been around forever and we're thinking of their old careers and then we're thinking of the people who were on the show in the early 90s and now they're middle-aged and then we even have this other stratum of these people who are starting to age out of their golden youth or whatever. I don't want to say their peak years are in the past because a lot of these people are still really successful as actors, but there's just a sort of a bittersweet quality to it. I don't know. It, and it's a little surreal because 2000s don't feel like that long ago. And yet there's that passage of time there. You can feel it. So I just think that's an interesting choice for that generation of actors to choose several actors for small parts who had these big breakthroughs a decade ago. For Steven and Gersten, we see them out in the woods. We see a man walking his dog. Turns out it's Cyril Pons, the character played by Mark Frost. Uh, he was actually a reporter in season two, season one and two, actually. We hear his voice in season one, and we see him in season two very briefly on the TV. And Frost has definitely confirmed, and I think the credits say this too, that it's the same character. So this guy's walking through the woods, and uh, eventually he comes across Steven and Gersten sitting under this huge tree but before he gets there there's this long conversation very abstract very cryptic reminds us a little of some of the conversations at the roadhouse and uh the, just this dialogue between the two of them they seem extremely stoned on something and he's holding a gun and he's saying i did it and she's saying no she did it and we're not sure what they're talking about but it's pretty unsettling after cyril stumbles across them and walks away Gersten runs around the tree and then we hear the gun go off and it seems almost certain that Stephen has shot himself. We're just left with this, this storyline at this spot. The only other thing we see is Cyril going back to Fat Trout Trailer Park, telling Carl about what happened. And to do so, he points at the trailer that uh, Stephen and Becky were, were living in and we notice something very ominous there. There is a hole in the window, which we saw the coffee cup make that hole, so we know what that was. But there's, then there's a piece of cardboard over the window, and there's a bullet hole in that cardboard. So a lot of people watched this and thought, oh my god, Stephen killed Becky. And that seemed like a reasonable supposition. I never quite felt like it was true. In fact, I don't know that I even got that impression on first viewing, but as people talked about it, I was like, oh man, they might be going for that. Like, I didn't like it. You know, I want Becky to survive. I hoped we were going to see more of her on the show even. The scene is very lynchy and i'd be curious to know if it was in the original script it goes right up there with the amputee and as i mentioned the roadhouse sequences uh the, the, perhaps even that audition sequence in mulholland drive where everything's out of context cryptic dialogue that lynch does oh so well where we don't know what or who the characters are talking about but it has great meaning to them he talks about how he's a high school graduate i think he throws an animal in there somewhere a zebra or something i can't remember which also reminds us of the roadhouse. There's something going on here. I can't quite put my finger on it, but I think other people have theories, so write them in if you've got them. For the Richard's parents plotline, we don't get anything within Twin Peaks, but that was a story that was born in Twin Peaks, so we'll follow it to other locations. We find out that Richard is indeed Audrey Horn's son. This was already 
99% confirmed because Ben said he was his grandson. We know Sylvia was his grandmother. There's really not much else where, where this would go. Now we get the confirmation explicitly. Mr. C asks him, who is your mother? And he says, Audrey Horn. So there you go. He also mentions that he saw uh, he saw Cooper's picture because his mother had it or something. The way he talks about it makes me think Audrey has never been there. Finally, with Audrey, we see her and Charlie standing at the doorway. They're still talking about going to the roadhouse, but now he's got his coat on. She's got it in her arms. But instead of leaving, she just keeps questioning him. Like, what are you doing? Why aren't we leaving? And it becomes a self-perpetuating thing. And I think if the idea here is this kind of psychodrama between the the impulse to do something, to go somewhere, to, to, to move, to break out of your mental prison, and then the other impulse to kind of restrain it, pull you back. And what's interesting here is it, that role is shifting. Charlie says he's ready to go, but now it's Audrey who keeps hesitating and finding reasons not to, but kind of blaming him for it. And then at the end of the scene, he just pisses her off by sitting down saying, all right, that's it. I guess we're not going. Puts his coat down. She leaps onto the couch and starts like strangling him. It's odd that this scene comes after the log lady. It's just a very strange shift. We go from this sweet, melancholy, very sad, poignant scene of the log lady's death to this arch, strange, uh, kind of black comedy, absurdist melodrama thing, whatever you want to call it. We're just going from one extreme to the other. It feels kind of shocking. And I remember thinking at the time, oh, like we're not going to end or let that linger. This seems like an odd way to kind of break that mood. But I think part of the interesting thing of what he's doing here is he's placing the Audrey scene in the roadhouse scene after the log lady, after we actually fade out on her house, which I'll talk about in a moment. But by doing so, it implies that these are, if not after death, at least kind of outside of life in a way, like these are in some other realm. A recently introduced uh, subplot that does show up here in this episode is Chad in jail. We see him still in his cell when they bring James and Freddie in, and uh, Bleeding Drunk is still yelling out, and the, uh, you know, NATO is still chirping, and all that noise is going on. And the scene is really more about Freddie and James adapting to this new environment, being fascinated by NATO, but uh, Chad is certainly a part of this as well. And he also mocks Freddy. He says, uh, what would that green glove freak do now? Or something like that. Uh, so he's just a jerk to everybody in town, which I find kind of funny. It's like everyone knows him. Everyone dislikes him for their own reasons. So finally, I want to discuss the standalone scenes. And there's really only one that doesn't tie into these other plot lines. And that's Hawk walking into the conference room and telling Frank and Bobby and Andy and Lucy that Margaret Lanterman has passed away tonight. And there's a Bot Lamenti theme playing, and Lucy starts to cry, and it's, you know, a very moving, nice tribute to not just the Log Lady, but to Catherine Coulson. I believe the episode is dedicated to Margaret Lanterman, whereas uh, a previous episode was dedicated to Catherine Coulson. So this is as much to the character as anything else. And it's a goodbye to that character that kind of stands outside of the story and the plot in general. It's just something Lynch had to make room for, and he did. And I'm sure it was very powerful for the actors to film as well, and I wonder when they filmed it, if they filmed it soon after she died, like that night even, or something like that, because I know she did die a few days later, and they were up in Snoqualmie shooting, I mean, a few days after she shot her scenes. And then we get one last shot in the woods of her cabin, and there's a light in the window, and it fades out. And then the shot fades out as well, and that's it.
one more note before we go. There is a story that disappeared from this uh, series at this point because it's been gone for four or more episodes. Shelly and Red. I actually had to revise this episode because I originally said Shelly and Bobby. But Shelly and Bobby, we did see uh, come up a few episodes ago when uh, Bobby goes into the diner looking for Shelly. Shelly and Red, on the other hand, we haven't seen since part 11 when they uh, sneak out, I guess not really sneaking, rush outside to make out. That's it for this episode. Please rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts. You can support this work on patreon.com slash lost in the movies. Tomorrow we will continue with season three, part 15, and this time looking at the mythology. What scenes take place within the spirit world, and also what's the lodge lore that comes out throughout the episode? Uh, all the different uh, stuff there is to pick apart, and there's a lot of stuff in this episode. As we get near the end of this season, we're really overdosing on the, uh, the mythos of it all. So we'll see you then, and thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.